As usual, uh, the book of Numbers always has more than you think, and uh, this is chapter 32 is no no exception to that, that's correct. So let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you have a land of pure delight awaiting us. I thank you that uh, you give this land to those whose hearts are set upon it. And I pray, Father, that in this uh, chapter of the book of Numbers that we might uh, learn about that promised land, that we might set our hearts and affections upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just jump in, uh, Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5. Uh, Laura Vesey, since you're in the back and he can get the mic to you pretty quick, would you read those first five verses for us? Oh, we don't, do we not have the mic? <laughs> That's all right, I'll read this and we'll get that in a minute, so okay. Uh, now the people of Reuben... And the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Ataroth, Debon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elias, Sabam, Nebo, and Baon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. So what you need to see from the maps that I have up here This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land of Israel. It goes all the way down to the the desert, down in the south. The borders somewhere above, this is Sea of Galilee, this is Dead Sea. Borders up here, comes down like this. Um, This is the promised land. This is the land that God had given to Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the land of which they were brought up out of Egypt to come into this land. So this particular piece of land is equated with uh, the promise of God. So to not want to be have a place in the land, remember the daughters of Zelophehad were very, very concerned that their name, their dad's name, would be blotted out, and he wouldn't even have a place in this land. So you can imagine when uh, Reuben and Gad come and say, we don't want to go into that land, you can imagine what a problem this would be, right? So that's, it'd be like saying, and this is, I think, maybe pushing the, the climax to the beginning, but I'll do it anyway. It'd be like saying, you know what? I'm okay with my piece of land that I have here on this earth. I'm really not that interested in my eternal home. Does that make sense? So you can see this is, this is pretty serious. And in order to take this land, they're going to have to fight battles because there's people in this land that they're going to have to dispossess. So for two tribes to say, ah, I think we'll just be happy to stay over here, uh, you can see how this will be a problem in the book of Numbers. And so you want to know, how, how is this going to be handled? So first off, um, you need to know that Jazer is just a city, maybe a capital city, in the land of Gilead. And Gilead, uh, particularly above the Jabbok, but maybe even including some below it, Gilead is this region to the east of the Jordan River. That's Gilead. 
Uh, also, Gilead is known for its fertility and fruitfulness. And I thought it might be interesting to just kind of just show you this, walk around and show you this a little bit. That is a beautiful land right there. I mean, that, we're, we're not talking, you know, a lot of times you see pictures of Israel and you go, that doesn't look like a great place to be. But this is, this is the land right here, and it's, it is nice. Pretty, pretty land. Letting you all see this so you can get it. This is, this is prime country. This is not the middle of Texas. This is good land. You guys see that a little bit back here? Uh, so, and it, it's particularly suited for livestock. And if you remember, almost from the beginning, every time one of God's people's flocks increase, you would hear often the land was not able to support both of them, right? And so they had to split and divide. Jacob and Esau did this. Um, Abraham and Lot did this. Uh, And so you have this question, if if this is the land of promise, you would think that that land should be able to support everyone. So the question we're going to have is, are Reuben and Gad, are they, are they not walking in faith by their request? Or is there some other reason going on? So that's, that's really what we're getting at here. Um, let's see here. So, uh, just to be, I'll go through, to remain east of the Jordan, to remain over here, um, there'd be problem on several levels. One, the promise given to Abraham would be that his people would live in the land. So to have some of the, some of the 12 tribes living outside of the land would look like the promise was not fulfilled. Remember, it's got to be all 12, because that's completion. Got to be all of Israel living in it. So to have some outside of it would would be like God's promise had failed. This could be an act of rebellion or cowardice on the part of Reuben and Gad. They could just, we've had enough fighting, we fought against some enemies here, we really don't want to keep that battle going, you know, we're happy, let's just stay here. Could be that. Uh, This could also be a division. So there could be like a, this could... uh, Begin the crack that would would uh, separate uh, God's people forever, right? Even in like in the New Testament and in, in Ephesians, when they're talking about Jews and Gentiles, it says Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility because God wants all of His people to be united as one. So that could be a problem, and um, just practically. Uh, the Israelites are going to need every man they can get to conquer the enemies on this side. So all those problems uh, are there. <clears throat> Questions on that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that is. Yeah, like, like they, uh, I'm just talking about what the problems would be. Yes, on a practical level, it could just be that they like this land. This is good enough for us. But then, you can see how all this connects with faith. Like, someone could say, well, my life is good enough for me. So you're not yearning after the true home. You're, you're just you're, uh, saying to God, no, what you've already given me is enough. Now, it could be contentment, but it could also be lack of faith. And so, at this point, we really don't know, is what I'm trying to get at. We should be concerned, but we don't really know what to do. All right, so let's look at and read 6 through 15. Now we can give the microphone to Laura, and she can read those for us. <laughs> She's not bothering me. I mean, it might be bothering everybody else. But <laughs> but Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshol, they saw the land. 
They discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who come up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the desert for forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. Okay, so how does Moses interpret their request? Yeah, this is, we've seen this before. This is a repetition of what happened before. You can, uh, you can see that um, in the past, when they were coming up this way, um, they, only Joshua and Caleb, right, were willing to go into the land. And because 10 tribes, 10 bad reports, it caused the people to not obey the voice of the Lord. A portion, you know, Joshua and Caleb couldn't go in by themselves. They needed all Israel to go in together, right? Because it's all Israel's victory. It's all Israel's battle. And so he, Moses, just flat out accuses them. How many of us would be like Moses at this point? <laughs> Bunch of wusses. Line up. Get on, get on with me. Uh, so... Um, he also thinks that they're not going would actually discourage others, right? Well, they didn't have to go. They got some good land. Why do I have to go and do this, right? So he thought it could be a discouragement to others from going into the land. And we have precedent that God caused all Israel to wander in the wilderness because a portion of Israel refused to go in the land. So he's not saying it's just he's angry. He says the Lord was angry. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't like, um, I don't berate Moses at all in this. I think he's being consistent. Uh, I think he's trying to be a good leader. He's thinking of everything that's the problems of the past, and he's challenging them. Is this what you're doing? You know, so that's, that's uh, his statement to them. Now, let's hear their defense. Verses 16 through 19. Jet, you want to read? Nope. How about Tanya? You want to read 16 to 19? Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock. And cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel, until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. All right, so let's parse out some of the details of this defense. What's, what is their defense? Okay, so when it comes to the fight, they, we will fight. And, and it, it's interesting, I don't know how this works out when they go into the promised land, but it, it seems like they're, they're saying we, let's say um, Dan conquers land up here. It, it's not entirely clear if once Dan conquers their land, like the whole people come in and they go, it, it's not entirely clear Yet, I mean, I think we could go to Joshua and answer this. But it seems like once you've conquered your piece of land, you don't have to go on and conquer everybody else's piece of land. But these guys are saying, we're not going to even come back until every tribe has their inheritance. So they're even willing to do at least, 
may, I'll say more than the rest, but it's at least um, equal to the rest, if not more, than what the rest of the tribes are doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, lots of them. Right, well, they had, they had conquered a kingdom here. They had conquered a kingdom here. I mean, so they had, the whole tribe of Israel had gone up and conquered these peoples. This is, so uh, there wasn't much left. There were people down here, um, you know, the uh, Edomites and the Moabites and stuff, but there really wasn't people above because they... Like further to the east... But see, but here, here, this is a huge desert. So it's like a natural, it's almost like the Mediterranean Sea on this side. This is like a natural barrier on this side. So certainly people could come this way, but very few people came across the desert that way to them. So. Well, I mean, you could look at it that way, but till, always the enemies of Israel will come in from the north. You had the Philistines down here, um, but typically... You had the Egyptians coming up from the south, but you didn't get people coming straight in from the east. So, uh, now, not only were they willing to fight, there's some other things you can notice in their defense. Uh, uh, where are you there? Uh, take it or go Okay, so there must be some people still around, scattered. And so uh, even though that their kings have been defeated, there are some inhabitants in, in the land. And so they are building places for who? Women and children. So what are, what are they, because there's still inhabitants that could potentially, not a lot to defeat an army, but enough that could put your families at risk, they're taking a big risk by sending their troops all the way over the Jordan and leaving their women and children with all those wonderful flocks back in the, uh, the land that they're leaving. Well, it, it could be a chance of their mingling, but I, I think at this point, that mingling would be uh, something that would occur after they return to the land if they're not zealous. I think right now they're afraid that those people would basically rape and pillage their families. So I think that it, it requires, I think, faith for them to do this. That they're, they're willing to put what matters most to them, women and children, uh, at risk in order to maintain their trust in uh, the solidarity of the whole people of Israel which means that they are, they are um, not just seeking for their own welfare, right? Because if they were, they wouldn't go about it this way. Uh, we might send 10% over there with you. We're keeping the rest for ourselves. No, they put themselves completely open at risk, trusting that God will protect their families while they go and do this. So that's, it's faith on their part. Yes, Susan. That's right. That's true. And, and I think that that's going to be a... Uh, did everybody hear what she said? So like if we don't go in, then you guys get more, you get bigger pieces of land because we're not going to be there. And that makes sense. If this land of Israel is not the true eternal land of Israel. If this is the true land of Israel, then it makes no sense. Because that land should be able to support all of its people. Like if you had a gallon of lemonade, but you only had like a, enough cups to fill it, fill up two, like two glasses, you got all this leftover lemonade, what are you going to do with it, right? So however big this land is, it ought to be able to contain all Israel and supply them. So I agree with you, but I actually, this, is, this whole chapter and other places in, is, in the Old Testament was really what got my mind going that this cannot, even from the beginning... This was never intended to be the true 
land of Israel. Abraham looked forward to a city who had foundations coming out of heaven, right? A heavenly city. Um, So this land was always a symbolic foreshadow of the true land. Well, that's what I would say. The the true Israel is the entire new heavens and new earth. So I would even argue whatever planets are way out there in the cosmos, that's a part of our eternal new heavens, new earth. Now, I think that we live on the earth, but it's certainly the entirety of the earth, the four corners of the earth. But the new creation is ours. Um, So, okay, so anyway... Also, um, they are, how, do, how does, there's one more thing here, it's very important, because they use a term that everyone would know refers to the promised land. In verse 19. What is, how do they view this land of Gilead? Inheritance. Remember, Joshua, uh, Zelophehad, and everyone's all about their inheritance in the land. So when they say, our inheritance has come to us here, they are making the jump in their minds. They believe that they are just as much in uh, receiving the inheritance given to Abraham on the other side of the Jordan. They're, they don't accept, oh, we, we're okay with less than God's promise. They just say that our land is what God has given to us here. We're part of that inheritance. Which again is very powerful, right? So in essence, they're saying, no, 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 count, it, count this in. This is how it would be like this big, it's like a, goes like this and then comes down like that. This big region, they believe, is part of the inheritance given to Abraham. Are you following this? Sure, yes. And that, they're certainly expanding the borders here. Yes, yep. All right, so let's see how, how will Moses respond to this. So I'm, the third one here is inheritance. They don't want another inheritance. They believe that God has given them this inheritance, which is a part of Abraham's inheritance. Very important. So 20 through 24. Uh, Let's give that to, uh, where's our microphone? There you go. Give that to Mr. Clark or Lee. Oh, you can give give it to little Clark back there. We got two of them now. That's all right. Give it to little Clark. He didn't know. He's not going to read. Okay. Then Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if you will all go armed over the Jordan before the Lord, until he has driven his enemies out before him. Then when the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities and your women and, for your women and children and pens for your flocks, but do what you have promised." Okay, so what's Moses now, his reaction? Okay, right? If that's what you really believe, then that's okay. Uh, you will be, you'll be free from ongoing obligation. Uh, he, he grants to these tribes their inheritance from the Lord outside the land. But if you don't do this, if you're just playing a game with me, if you're just trying to hide your, all the problems that we had before, if you just you're really uh, don't care about the internal inheritance, what does he say God will do? He'll find you out. So, so often when I talk about obedience to God, we talk about the norm. We talk about the situation. And we talk about the heart. 
And all that's included here, right? There's a unique situation. As Lee says, it's very practical for them with their large herds to stay in this region. Uh, You have the norm. What's the norm? God's standard. You must must desire the promised land. And you must be united with the rest of God's people. That's, That's the norm. You can't just go off on your own and do what you want. What's practical to you? The norm is you have to trust in God. You have to um, be willing to fight with God's people, and you still have to be looking to the true inheritance. And so they maintain that norm. And then Moses just challenges them on the heart issue. Are you using this flexibility as just a smokescreen to hide your wicked heart? If you are, then you're going to be found out because you cannot ever pull the wool over God's eyes. Yes. I don't know. You have trouble believing he would do that? I don't know. It doesn't. It, we don't hear of Moses making plans to leave people in the land. I don't know. You know. Um, I don't know. That's a good. That's a good thought. But I don't like. There's nothing in the text that tells us uh, we have to leave a, a contingent here to make sure the enemies don't come in and conquer this. Uh, maybe he could have left some some sentries on the border here. I don't know, but it doesn't say that, that there was ever plans top down for Israel to leave people on this side of the Jordan. It's only after Reuben and Gad say, let us do it. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you, but I'm not disagreeing. I just want to know what you think on that. If I had conquered an area, yeah. and it was mine, right? I wouldn't just abandon it to the heathens. <laughs> <laughs> except, except that this was, what was the reason why Israel conquered these two kingdoms? Huh? What, Mary? God told them to conquer them. Midian and Moab, yeah, yeah. Practice. It really was. See, because when they came up from the south, they, they were just going to go in and conquer the land. When they come around this way, and this is really clear in the book of Deuteronomy, God is like taking little baby steps and teaching his children how to, how to obey his command and trust him. So when they get to the Edomites and the Moabites, God, God says, don't fight them. So they have to obey and go around them. When he gets to the Ammonites, he says, knock them out. And so they're learning to obey, their army is functioning as an army, all those kind of things. But it was never because God was saying, this is a part of your promised land. Otherwise, none of this makes sense. Who's going to lead people here? Because their whole purpose is to get into this land. Now, I, I would argue that providentially, God does this whole thing because he wants to very subtly say that the confines of the physical promised land are never the true confines. That he's, he's just subtly beginning to teach this um, to the people. So, all right, let's keep moving. Uh, 25 through 30. Lee, you want to read? And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will pass over every man who is excuse me, armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, 
they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. Hmm. Okay, so um, if they keep their word, what will happen? Verse 29. Yeah, they'll have their possession there. Um, But if they don't, this is an interesting statement in verse 30. Which, which is amazing. Like, I, I would say, if you don't come in, if you don't fulfill your word, you're out, and we're down to 10 tribes. But they say, no, they can't do that. Why can they not do that? Because they got to still have 12 tribes. So instead of saying to them, you're just done, and that's it, you're out, well, now you're just going to be scattered all over Canaan. So you're not going to have, uh, you're going to be in. I think of uh, Paul saying, some of us will go into glory with our, you know, uh, precious jewels and, and gold. And, and some will just go through wood, hay, and stubble, right? They just, there's going to be a sense where they will, uh, they got to be in here because all Israel is going to be saved, but you're not going to have the inheritance that you thought. So they will be scattered among the rest of the tribes of Israel. See, it's just, it's, it's so hard to think about the the connection between personal accountability and judgment and the ongoing promise to Abraham to save all his people. So like, does God ever, throughout the all Old Testament, does God have a problem of taking an individual and taking them out of the land of promise, excommunicating, casting them off. I mean, that happens all the time. So how in the world can you do that and yet still hold to the fact that all Israel will enter the promised land? That's a mystery. I mean, it's the mystery of Romans 9 through 11. If you understand that, Paul gets to the end of Romans 11 and says all Israel will be saved. Even while he's been cutting out Israelites all through. And he can cut out Gentiles if they don't have faith in Christ. So he's, but he still has to have this concept that every tribe will be present. All Israel will be saved. I'm just telling you, that's a, that's a hard tension to hold through. It's very confusing as you go through uh, you know, the Old Testament. And here's just a case. I would have thought, look, if you guys fail to keep your word, you're out. End of Reuben, end of Gad, we're down to ten tribes. But that's not the way it says. When I read this, uh, the rhythm and the content of what's going on reminded me of Abraham and Ephraim negotiating for the field with the two. It's uh, the same. Yeah. There's a rhythm to it. There, yes. Forth, it's like they're, they're bartering. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's just go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, 31 to 42. Uh, I'll bring that up to John Avery. He'll read for us. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. And Moses said to them, to the people of Gad, and to the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Shihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with its territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. And the people of Gad built Dibon, Ataroth, Ariar, Aroth Shopan, Jazir, Jehogabah, Beth Dimrah, Beth Aran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. And the people of Reuben built Heshbon, Elale, Kirathiam, Nebo, Bel, Minon. Their names were changed 
and Sibma. And they gave other names to the cities that they built. And the sons of Machir and the sons of Manasseh went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havroth Jair. And Nobah went and captured Kenoth and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name. Okay, so this is basically just a, a statement that they kept their word. I mean, that's really, you know, they kept their word, and uh, God's going to keep his word to them. We see here that instead of just Gad and Reuben, we also see another tribe included. Right? Half-tribe of Manasseh. Right? Uh, who's a, of the tribe of Joseph. So you really have two and a half tribes on the east. Two and a half tribes. Um, now how does this affect um, Israel moving forward? Uh, let's look at a couple passages here. Uh, Let's look up uh, Psalm 60, verses 7 and 8. Uh, Got it, Christian? Read Psalm uh, 60, verses 7 and 8. Wait a minute, Psalm 60? Yes. Verses 7 and 8? So, all right, so just a, a poetic statement that God extends his rule. Uh, he's he's uh, declaring sovereignty over. And what do we see here? Gilead belongs to him. Manasseh would have been that half tribe of Manasseh on the, on the east. Ephraim, my helmet. Judah, my scepter, that's in the land. But then he says Moab. Now, Moab had not been conquered yet. God had told him not to conquer. But yet he says, Moab is my wash basin. So he's going to have his sovereignty over them as well. Edom, I cast my shoe. And Philistia, which is that area down here, which was um, always stubborn and refused to be conquered very long by Israel. So God says, all of these belong to me, even Moab and Edom. So again... When you say, well, what land is God's land? All of it, right? So again, I think you're seeing this inclusion of Gilead as a part of God's land does speak to the expansion of God's territory. Um, So let's look at uh, Jeremiah 46.11. Uh, Actually, let's read Jeremiah 8 first, and then we'll do 46. Jeremiah 8, verses 20 and 22. Jessica Hoover, you want to read for us? Sure. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Okay, so keep the the mic because I'll have you read that, Jeremiah 46. Um, So what Jeremiah is talking about, the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of Israel. They've been carried into Babylon. And he's like, the 
the richness of the land of Gilead had provided medicines for God's people. It was a really rich place, very fertile. And, and yet now they're suffering on the borders of Babylon and they're like, there's no balm to be had. There's no medicine that can fix our problems. And then later on in Jeremiah 46, verse 11. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. Okay, so he's kind of still judgment on, on Egypt. Um, and he's, you know, they're still using Gilead as this place of healing. And then Jeremiah 50, verse 19. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall be freed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. Okay, so what we're seeing here is that even though Egypt, who's you know, uh, not trusting in, in God, they can't find any balm in Gilead. God is going to bring his people back, and he's going to give them balm in Gilead. Um, So there's a, as we look forward to the final redemption of Israel, it is amazing that God doesn't just say, oh, Gilead is an add-on. He actually uses them as a symbol of the healing powers of God's redemption. When you think about like uh, in Revelation when it talks about the healings of the nations and it's, you know, Gilead becomes the symbol of that. Of the, of the place where God would heal his people when they come to him humbly uh, in repentance. Um, Zech, one more, Zechariah 10, verses 9 and 10. Uh, give that to uh, Little Clark now, make him read verses 9 and 10. Zechariah... 10, 9, and 10. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. Hmm. Okay, so here, Zechariah, again, this picture of them being uh, scattered all over the earth, and they're even talking about the Assyrians. The Assyrians didn't, um, the Babylonians took the people, and they put them in a region here. But the Assyrians, they took them and scattered them all over their empire, scattered everywhere. But when God says, I'm going to bring them back, he uses Gilead as the picture. So it's very clear that Gilead has been, usurped as a part of the inheritance of which you will experience God's blessing. Now think about this. Is God today gathering his people from the farthest regions of the earth? So how do you interpret this? How is he bringing you to Gilead? You're going to go to that little region over here? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to find a piece of property in this region right here? How do you Apply the promise that he will bring you to Gilead. The church. <clears throat> new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. So you, you know that whatever the pains that you're experiencing, whatever the difficulties because of past rebellion, because of just living in a fallen world, whatever the problems are, God will heal you. And Gilead is a picture of that. That's a good way, yes. I think, yeah. So a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you Christians just take the, you know, the physical promises in Israel and you just, you just get rid of them and apply them yourself. But that's what God wants you to do. He's, he's purposely using these, these physical places to show you what he's going to do for you eternally and spiritually. And so, how do you apply this chapter if you are Reuben and Gad? Okay, physical location is irrelevant. That's good. Let me find my my pen here. What did I do with it? I put it in my pocket. Um, 
this land, not it. So wherever you are, wherever you are, this is not your home. Okay. Now, at the same time, you could draw from this that God sometimes has given you a very good life. It's been good of you to be raised in America. Should you be saddened by that and say, oh, it's terrible. I should rather just be a homeless person, you know, in Nairobi or something. You know, no, you should be just as the, is, the uh, Reuben and Gad were like, this is good land. We're here. We're okay with this. But how do you show to God that you're not just setting your heart upon your little piece of land that you have? Keep your word to do what? What? To do, okay, so you keep your word to worship? How about you keep, how do you stay in the fight? Who's, whose fight are you fighting for? The church. Should we care about world missions? Oh, no, we're doing okay right here. No, we should be fighting for those who don't have the, the gospel. We should take the, 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 the uh, concerns of the whole church, and we should, as much as we can, fight for that. And not just be like, eh, we're doing all right, forget the rest. Right? See how you, and then you should also be thinking about the unity with other believers. Should you grieve for believers who are grieved? Should you be joyful for those who are joyful? Yeah, you should be united with the God's people. So there should be solidarity among the whole church. This is why when we take communion, you're not supposed to be at odds with your brother or sister in Christ, but you're to be one in Christ because we care about one another. It's not enough that my family's doing okay. I need to think about Peter's family or Tanner's family. You know, you need to be thinking of the rest of the body of church. They might be going, you might have conquered a battle against some sin. Great. Do you care about the person coming after you who's in that wage in that battle and has not yet conquered it? Right? You see how we enter in with the rest of God's people. And I'm sorry, don't we also have to make sure that in Matthew 7 they talk about the false prophets and basically what they teach, their Sure. So that's one way to fight. You fight for people, and you fight for doctrine, because the doctrine is the truth of who Christ is, and if you have false doctrine, you're not going to be able to help people, give them what the truth is. So yes, what's Paul say to Timothy? Keep your life and your doctrine pure, for by that you save many people. Both of those are important. So but you, so these elements of, that are happening here, you begin to think, oh, I got, my heart should be set on my eternal home. Even if I'm okay with the temporal home God's given me. Nothing wrong with be happy with your temporal home. Not a bad thing. Right? God has blessed you with that. It's to be received with thanksgiving. But you set your heart on the eternal home. And on the fight that all of God's people are engaged in. Because we are one with them. And to, you, and to not do this is a breach of faith. Yes, you're absolutely right. That's well said. I'll also say this. This passage teaches us that your motivation matters. What's going on in your heart is really what God judges. So like I might get upset at Christian because he's going about trying to serve the kingdom in a different way than I am. Okay? But that's not really the issue, is it? God knows what's going on in Christian's heart. Is he worshiping? Is he trying to fight for God's people? Is he trying to love other people in the church and fight for true doctrine? Is he trying to maintain this unity? Is he setting his heart on, on eternal riches? He knows that. And that's what matters to God. Not necessarily how you live it out as opposed to somebody else. I mean, I'm not saying that's insignificant. There are certainly wrong ways to do it. But, but God 
looks at your heart. So, one other way I would apply this kind of goes back to Moses. Concern for what happened in the past can often cloud our judgment in the present. I'm thankful that Moses reverses his attitude, but his immediate reaction is, no, you guys are being rebellious. And I, I, I think that happens. Like if in your own life, if you've had a bad experience, it's really quick to take the next experience and just interpret it by the past experience. And so we have to be careful in doing that and praise God that Moses... Uh, is he switches. It's a very humble thing. There's a reason why God says that Moses is one of the most humble men. On, I mean, he, he switches his view on this, which is pretty amazing. <clears throat> yeah. That's, that's interesting. Yes, I don't know. And, and, um, because uh, a lot of them do have names. Maybe it was a, a city already previously existing and they just carried the name over. I don't know. You would think they'd want to get rid of all those. The Israelites haven't gotten all of their idolatry out of their hearts either. So there is a, um, there is a sense in which um, these eastern tribes will be influenced... <laughs> By the idolatry and paganism around them. Um, so. <clears throat> Can I ask you to say that again? Because she's going to give you the microphone. It's not working? Oh, go right up here. Bill. This also has a, an implication in it that the people have to evaluate that they are doing what the Lord wants them to do, not what they want to do. And that's a constant battle. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're right in this particular situation, but it's so easy to find yourself not doing what the Lord really wanted them to do. It's interesting that you say this, Bill, because Ian Duguid, who's a guy I really, really respect, he thinks that it's very possible that uh, Reuben and Gad didn't have the perfect uh, motivations, but that only after being challenged by, by Moses do they go, oh, okay, yeah, that's right, and we need to, to have the right motivations. I don't know if that's correct. We, we can't judge what went on, but, but it does bring to mind that, that uh, it's so easy for our motivations to then get very clouded and we get distracted so easily into falling back into I'm caring more about myself than the rest of what God, obedience to God. <clears throat> You're going to have to uh, help me understand what is the heart of your question there. So when you say immutability, that means that God does not change. And impassibility means that God is not affected. Um. Like he's, he's impervious to what's happening. So and what's your question or comment or concern with this? How so, do we... F- so those, the, the two tribes didn't change God's mind. Like they did not act on his will or his passions and he switched what the land was. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, so, so how I, do you go from, from a limited small piece of land to one that's bigger without saying that God's changed. Right, yes. Okay. Well, um, I don't know if this is a a good illustration, uh, but when your kids are small, 
many of the games that you have them play actually reflect things that they will do in their adulthood. So whether or not you give Barbie dolls, you know, whatever, or if you give little play plastic toy sets to try to, or if you have little balls that you're throwing, you know, whatever. You give games that actually are not the, the true essence of the game. You're actually trying to teach them something larger, which is why it just, like, grates my heart when I see, like, little, like, play computers and cell phones that, you know, it's just like, yeah, that's exactly what we want. We want our two-year-old learning how to play on the cell phone, right? I mean, that's, you know, so, so I think... God has uh, things that he needs to teach his people that he, he has to, in a sense, as Calvin says, use baby talk. Uh, he has to get down on their level and he has to explain it to them on their level. And until the resurrection, there are certain things that just can't be explained in their full reality. So God has to teach his people that there will be a future, eternal, new heavens and new earth that will be resurrected, and you'll be in a resurrected body to enjoy it, and all the, everything will be, and you're like, what? What? We can't even fathom that until Jesus actually rose from the dead, and you say he was dead, and all his wounds, now he's alive, and he can walk through walls, and you're like, now I get the resurrection. It's very different. But prior to then, they still might be thinking of a heavenly uh, home, they might be thinking of something bigger, but it's not as clear as when Jesus was resurrected. So he's got to teach them about a real land. He has to teach them about what it means to fight to go into that land. He has to teach them what it means to trust him to enter that land, uh, to care about uh, fighting against sin, to submit your heart to God, all those kind of things. So he teaches them this, all the while knowing that this is only an instruction uh, piece. So God is not changing it. He's actually, this has been his goal from the beginning. And he's just helping people to get this picture all along. He's trying to, he's trying to help them see things that they can't possibly imagine yet. So the same thing will happen in the book of Ezekiel. Pray for me because I'm trying to put together a, a study guide for the book of Ezekiel. And it's a slow process, but I'm working on it. But the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are about a temple being built. And it is this glorious, perfect temple. And, and you think, and a lot of people today are still looking for this temple to be built. And, and what <laughs> Jesus says... I am the cornerstone of the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it again. And you, the church, are living stones being built into this temple. So you say, well, what's that old that, that temple even prophesied for? It's to help you understand that the old temple, Solomon's temple, that got destroyed was not enough, and that God is going to build a perfect temple. Well, what is that perfect temple? It's not a physical temple in Jerusalem. It is you as God's people, with Christ as the chief cornerstone. So again, same kind of things happening. He's teaching what is, is Jerusalem, a little city in Jerusalem it, or is it the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that is this glorious city? So again, all these things is God, are, are God showing that in the Old Testament, he's not getting rid of those promises, he's expanding and giving you the reality of those promises. So I hope that helps you. <clears throat> yes what well, absolutely at least not that we know of because i always think that like when he scatters the 10 northern tribes they just get incorporated into the into the gentile nations so i'm not i don't think it's the point but i, I it's not out of the question that some of us have jewish blood in us we don't even know we have jewish blood in us um so it's, uh, it, it is the fact that God is claiming his right over every nation, every people group. But it's not like he's doing that separate 
than bringing his 12 tribes in. He's, it's like somehow his promises to Abraham just expands and includes the Gentiles in that. It's, just, it's, it's really mysterious. It's fascinating. So, but there's only one branch. There's not, I mean, there's only one root. There's two branches, but only one root in Christ. Father, thank you so much for this, and I do thank you for Reuben and Gad that you um, took their personal desires and somehow responded to those desires um, and uh, even though that this was your plan from the beginning. I thank you that you order all things according to your plan. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to fight for your church. Help us to care about other Christians, not just ourselves. Thank you that we do have our own salvation and that you uh, have given us an eternal inheritance. But help us to continue to think about those coming after us. In Jesus' name, amen.